Summer is almost officially here. School is wrapping up, and this week we're beginning a series, if you couldn't tell by the screen there, that will run through the summer called Summer in the Minors. Uh, over this past year, we've had a theme that we've been using, a theme verse. You're going to see it up here on the screens. It from, comes from Colossians chapter 1. I think we have it up there. Yep. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. We want this year, for, as a church, for us collectively to grow in the knowledge of God, in spiritual wisdom. And as we talked about back at the beginning of the year, knowledge doesn't just mean facts. It means knowing. I, I can know a lot of facts about my spouse, and that can be helpful, that can be beneficial, but if I don't know her, we don't really have a relationship. And that's what this verse is calling us to. And so we're diving into this section of Scripture called the Minor Prophets. And we're doing that so that we can come to know more of who God is. So over the next 12 weeks, we're going to take a look at a part of your Bible that you probably haven't spent a lot of time in. Uh, some of you might actually, uh, now this is a somewhat new Bible for me here, but if you open it up, there's the pages that are still stuck together because you pass them by. So right towards the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament, the Minor Prophets. And if you spent any time in church, you probably heard teachings or studied some of what we call the major prophets, maybe your Isaiah's or Ezekiel's, but you don't spend a lot of time in Obadiah. So why are we studying the minor prophets? I think the name that these books have been given that start in Hosea, which is where we're going to start today, and end in Malachi, have caused us to see them as less important. But they aren't called the minor prophets because they're less important than the other prophets, than Isaiah or Ezekiel. They're called the minor prophets simply because they're shorter. They're not less important, they're just shorter. And we've chosen the title of this series, Summer in the Minors, as a play on words of the minor league baseball season that started recently. Uh, but honestly, that's where this imagery and this illustration breaks down. Because the minor prophets aren't called the minors because they weren't good enough to play in the big leagues. Uh, this is about the extent, and those of you guys who know me uh, have kind of learned that I don't know a lot about sports, so seeing a title somewhere in the minors and seeing a baseball field down there, that's about as sports metaphors as you're going to get in these messages. But it's been said that the minor prophets have a major message. The minor prophets have a major message. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, these books weren't 12 different books. They were put together in what was called the 12, the book of the 12, one unit. And they're divided up differently in our Bible, but we're going to spend the next 12 weeks going through one book at a time. And uh, these 12 books, some a little longer, some as short as a page or two, aren't less important, even though they're less known. There's a passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy that says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. 
And this is exactly what the minor prophets show us. The minor prophets help us see a clear picture of who God is and who we are and how we are to live. And particularly, what is wrong in our lives. So as we look at these 12 books, uh, you're going to begin to see some recurring themes. And I want to issue a challenge to you. I want to encourage to you that we're going to read each book each week. I want to encourage you to actually read the text of the book. So this morning, we're diving into the book of Hosea. So this week, you can spend some time reading Hosea. It'll take you, if you do it in one sitting, a half an hour. Uh, the average length of a TV sitcom to read that book. Some won't take you more than five minutes to read. But I encourage you to spend time on your own in these books. We tee them up on Sundays and then read them throughout the week. So we'll be giving you a 50,000-foot flyover in our message time in here Sunday. Uh, but I also want to give you an opportunity to dive deeper. Because what you're going to find, what I found, I'll be honest, this is the part of the my Bible that I spend the least amount of time in too. But as I've been looking at this, as we prepare for this series, I just am reminded of the richness of the scriptures and the takeaways that I have for me in books that honestly I haven't given a lot of time and energy to. And because I know that you might feel the same way after you read these, I want to offer you, we're going to have each day on Facebook, there's going to be some resources that are posted there. Just some little things you can do, maybe some videos to watch, a little chapter to read, a blog post, some different things that'll help you to dive deeper into these passages to see what you can learn from them. So my hope is that we spend a little time in each of these books, it'll spark a desire to dive deeper. Even though these books are short and there's no way we can go in deeply into them and it's our time here together, there is some important truths that we need to take out. And I also want to encourage you to do one more thing. Be looking as we read these over this summer for Jesus. He pops up all throughout these 12 books. Let's pray together. God, I ask that as we spend some time over the next several weeks diving into the, this passage of Scripture, Lord, these books that we often, that I, I admit I honestly often overlook, uh, that I would see, maybe for the first time, that we would all see or we would be reminded of the truth and the power of your word. That we would see you, that we would learn to see you, to know you deeper, to see you more clearly through our study of these passages. Lord, over the next few minutes as we look at this book of Hosea, I ask that your presence would be felt among us, uh, that as I speak and as we thumb through our Bible looking through this book, Lord, that you would bring to light the things that we all need to hear, the message that you have for us through the prophet Hosea this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, a couple things before we get going into this. We need to understand what a prophet is. The minor prophets are, of course, written by prophets. And when we think of a prophet today, we often think of someone who tells the future, who prophesies about things to come. And there are some truth to that. That is something that the prophets often do. But the minor prophets, actually all of the prophecies in the Bible, they're not just telling the future. Prophets often help interpret what was happening in their time and in their place. They could see, the people could see more clearly what God was doing, or as often the case, what might happen, especially with the minor prophets, if they continued down the course that they were going. 
And that's really the message and the takeaway for us today as we read this. Now, these books weren't written to us, but they were written for us. You've heard us use that phrase this year as we've talked about how to study your Bible. The Bible isn't written to you, but it is written for you. And so we can look at this and we can see what God has for us. But I want to offer a word of caution, just like when you might read the book of Revelation, if you've sat through some studies of that, uh, don't just go looking for all the current events that are happening now as we go through the minor prophets. There, of course, is some parallels to things that we're experiencing today, but there's a danger of thinking, oh, this is what they're talking about here, because this scripture has been read for centuries, and it's been applicable to everyone who has read it. So the Minor Prophets, uh, one commentary of the Minor Prophets, the author stated this. So the specific mission of the Minor Prophets was threefold. To call the people to repentance so they might avert divine judgment, to warn them of the judgment of exile when there was no repentance, and to offer hope for the future. We're going to see that play out in each one of these books. I want to give you some background on the Minor Prophets. This, the Minor Prophets, what we read from Hosea to the end in Malachi, it spans about 300 years. In this time period that we're studying falls shortly after the reign of King David and Solomon, if you're familiar with those people in the Bible, when the people were, for the most part, following God. Uh, they were keeping their end of the covenant that was made. If you remember the covenant back through Abraham, that if the people would call on his name, if they would follow his commands that he lays out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that he would be their God and they would be their people. And the time period at the end of the Minor Prophets ends about 400 years before Jesus comes, and we're going to see the importance of that as we go through on this. But the Minor Prophets often were what were called, they delivered living sermons, not just the minor prophets. Prophets in general, if you read them in the Bible, they're a quirky bunch. Uh, they often do some strange things. And they weren't just to get attention. These strange things almost always had something to do with the message that God had for them because that in its essence is what a prophet is, a messenger from God. And so we're going to see some of these prophets do some very odd things, what's often called a living sermon that they're demonstrating for the people what God is saying to them. So Hosea lived around 700 B.C. This is where this story takes place. And Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. Things are not really going so well in the relationship between God and Israel, but the Israelites, the people of Judah, the two divided kingdoms, think things are going great. This is the height of the prosperity of God's people. Uh, they're living in decadence. Everything seems to be going their way. It's the height of prosperity for the kingdom. But some things are wrong. Things are going so well on the outside for them, but what they don't recognize is what Hosea wants to share with them. That things might look okay on the outside. Everything's going their way. But some things have happened that need to be dealt with. A Baal worship has infiltrated the people of Israel. They're living what's often called a both-and lifestyle. They're walking with God, sort of, because they've let the world corrupt them. 
And Hosea is speaking this prophecy, these message, this message from the Lord to warn the people of Israel of what will happen if they don't turn from their evil ways. I'm actually going to give you the main point of Hosea right now. So if you get nothing else from we're talking about today, take this away. Hosea could see that the nation was rotten to the core, even though things looked great on the outside. They were a people who were overcome with a dishonest government, an impure religion, godless homes, sexual promiscuity, and no personal integrity. Now, leave that up on the screen for a minute. I want you to take a look at that. I'm certainly not a prophet, but I'd say looking at that list, the book of Hosea might have a message or two for us today. Dishonest government, impure religion, godless homes, sexual promiscuity, and no personal integrity. And Hosea, like the minor prophets in general, came to deliver a warning. They're like the warning light that would appear in your car. I mean, what happens, we all know we have these warning indicators in our car, and if the warning light comes on, it tells us something's wrong. And what happens if you don't pay attention to the light? Bad things will happen. Some of you have learned that. You can't just ignore the warning light. And that's what often we see the people of God doing when these messengers came to deliver this message. Now, the book of Hosea is beautifully written. It combines some expertly crafted poetry and prose. And it tells the story of Hosea. It's interwoven with the story, the prophecies that the Lord is speaking to his people. And like often happens with prophets, Hosea's life is going to be a living testimony to God's message. And we're going to see that this job is not one that any of us would want to sign up for. And we're going to just quickly go through the book of Hosea, and then I want to give us some takeaways. The first chapter of Hosea really gives us a summary of the overarching theme of the entire book. And I'm going to read you a little bit at the beginning here. It's not going to be up on the screen, but if you want to follow along, we're in the book of Hosea. And we're starting in verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Hosea opens with the Lord speaking to Hosea and telling him to marry. And not just any woman. God tells Hosea to marry what I just read there says a prostitute, but a better translation of that is a wife inclined to infidelity. Sounds like a winner, doesn't it? Some translations say prostitute, but really a wife inclined to fidelity or, to put it bluntly, a whore. Now there's some question to whether this woman that Hosea is told to marry was already a prostitute or if it's God foreshadowing things to come. But regardless, it's evident that this woman has a reputation and that Hosea, a man of God, is going to knowingly marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful. Guys, how many of you would sign up for that one? Ladies, how many of you would sign up for that? If you knew that your husband, that your wife was going to be unfaithful, you knew it, would you still marry them? No matter how much he loves her, she's going to break his heart. 
And as if that wasn't bad enough, this woman's name is Gomer. <laughs> so Hosea marries Gomer, and they have a son. And God tells Hosea the son's name is to be Jezreel. And as is often the case, the name that you're given, especially if your dad happens to be a prophet of the Lord, is going to carry with it some meaning. And Jezreel means to scatter. But it also had a particular meaning to the people in Hosea's time. Jezreel was a place. It was a place that was known for a bloody battle and a murder. It had a reputation. You can find that story in 2 Kings. And two other children come into the picture, if we keep reading. The text leads us to believe that these kids probably aren't Hosea's. These are the children of Gomer's unfaithfulness. And Gomer gives birth to a daughter whose name is to be this, Lo-Ruhamah. Lo-Ruhamah, which sounds beautiful enough. But Lo is a prefix that means no. And Ruhamah, which is what we hoped her name would be, means love or mercy. So this daughter's name means no love. Parents, how many of you are going to name your kid that? Uh, you, you are no love, no mercy. Then after a while, Gomer has another son, and his name is Lo-Ami. No, and Amin means my people. So you're not my people. God actually says in verse 9, And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people, for Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. This word, this phrase, this verse, when it's translated, actually reads like this, I am not, I am to you. If you're familiar with God saying his name is I am. I am not, I am to you. You are no longer my people. So you've got these three kids walking around the place of death, not loved and not my people. And every time their name is called, it's a reminder to everyone who hears the message that Hosea is called to deliver to the people. Now, just a comment to my kids here. Uh, you think that being a pastor's kid is tough. Think about being a prophet there. It could be worse. Both of our girls have beautiful names that have beautiful meanings. But Homer's kids are a living testimony, a walking sermon illustration, a reminder that things are not going well between God and his people. Now, honestly, as we read this, and as you're going to read this this week, it doesn't sound like the same God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this is often what makes the message of the minor prophets so difficult to understand. We have to look at the big picture of what's happening. See, long before Hosea's time, way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. You can find the details of this covenant in Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28. If you're taking notes, write those down and read those this week. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. And the main theme of this covenant is, if you stick with me, you'll be my people and I will be your God. So there's a reason that all this is happening. Now chapters 2 and 3 of Hosea have Hosea talking with his son Jezreel. And it's this beautifully written intertwining of what's going on with Gomer, his wife, who just can't seem to let go of her old lifestyle, who keeps going back to this life of sin. 
in juxtaposing with what's happening in Israel. We learn that his wife leaves him. He leaves the kids, she leaves the kids, and she goes off wanting to live her own life, her own way. She abandons her love. And she doesn't even realize that what she's doing is being unfaithful to her husband. Hosea is still providing for her. And Gomer thinks all these great things that are happening in her life are come from what she's doing or her lovers, the things that are going on in her life. But Hosea himself has been providing for. And so it's not just that she's cheating on her husband. It's not just that she's abandoned her family. It's not all this sin in her life. It's her attitude, her disposition before God. She doesn't just continue to sin. She continues to sin and doesn't even care. She doesn't even think anything is wrong. And Hosea says in the second half of chapter 2, I'm going to cut you off. He's done with her. To put it bluntly, she made her bed and she's got to lie in it. She broke the part of the covenant, her part of the covenant. And the world no, no doubt looked at Hosea and said, it's about time. And this is what we say to each other, right? No one would blame Hosea for dropping Gomer. This isn't a girl who just made a mistake. She continually, time and time again, was a spouse who cheats, who's dishonest, and blatantly uses Gomer, or uses Hosea. Gomer is, I consider, like an addict. You know, those of us who aren't caught in the web of addiction, we don't understand why that person just won't get clean. Why won't they just make the right choice? Why do they keep giving up the good things and going back to that life? Why don't they just stop? But the reality is when you're in the middle of it, you often don't see the destruction. You don't see the damage that's caused around you and within you. When you're in the middle, you can't see the right way out. Because at times, oftentimes, you just don't want to. You, like Gomer, don't even think anything's wrong. Sin is like that. Now, the story could end right there. Hosea gave this woman a chance. He showed her love, but she blew it. So he's done. I mean, his life is going to be much better off without her. And you know what? That would be true. But Hosea's story isn't over. In chapter 3, God tells Hosea to go back to her. We read this in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, speaking to Hosea, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So he bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Hosea goes out and buys her back. Gomer's fallen into a terrible lifestyle. She's given in to her desires, and she's now become the property of others. She's a prostitute, and Hosea buys her back. He takes this woman who has turned her back on him in spite of all he's done, and he restores her. Now, chapters 4 through 14, the scene will shift. And Hosea is now delivering the word of the Lord. And he presents the case before the people, the illustration that's played out with his marriage. Now see, Hosea was a famous prophet. Everyone knew who he was. People 
no doubt knew all about his marriage to Gomer and what had happened. They couldn't believe that someone like Hosea would marry someone like her in the first place. But man, even after he loved her, and after all he did, she kept messing around on him. Time and time again, she played him for the fool. He should have never taken her back, they might say. But Hosea speaks now as a messenger of the Lord. And for the next few chapters, we hear all the ways the people have cheated on God. They were given everything, but they still wanted more. They took the blessing of God for granted and began to flirt with others. He details how they mixed their worship of God with the worship of other gods. And they started, like Homer, to attribute what they were experiencing with anything other than God. They started to particularly attribute the blessings they were experiencing to the political alliances that they had made with other lands. See, God had given them the covenant, and it was a promise that they would follow him if they would keep his commands, if they would serve only him, he would be their people, and he would be their God. But Israel had been like Gomer. God chose her. He made her his people, but she turned away. The people made alliances with the world, trusting in powers other than God, not trusting in God to take care of them. And over the next few chapters, Hosea details all the ways that Israel has broken their promise, all the ways they have broken their covenant with God. As I was reading through this, uh, one commentary pointed out something I'd never seen before. There's so much detail in chapters 4 through 14 as Hosea lays out the accusations against the people of Israel. But he details it out for a reason. Because every single one of these wrongs that Israel has done against God, they carry with it a consequence. There's a consequence for each and every action that Israel has taken upon themselves. Every curse had a reason. But every blessing is never explained. There's a reason God details out, these are all the things that you've done, how you've cheated on me. These are the reasons that I should divorce you. Just like Hosea would have done for Gomer. He was justified. He was righteous in that decision to do that. And God is righteous to break up with us, to let us go, to divorce us because of what we've done. Every action, every curse has a reason. But God's love, his blessings, he never explains that because it can't be explained. See, they put their trust in politics to save them. You got to remember, this is, once again, the height of Israel's decadence. Everything's going great. The economy's great. They have all the pleasures they've ever wanted. Things are looking great, but they're cheating on God. They're like Gomer, thinking that all the good things they've experienced are because of anything other than God. But they hadn't completely abandoned God. Matter of fact, to them, they didn't realize anything was wrong. People say, oh, of course we still love you, God. I mean, we still observe the religious feast, and we go to the temple, and we offer sacrifices. Yeah, we're still with you. Uh, you're still one of our gods. But God says, you don't know me. 
In Hosea 4.1, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. Knowledge of God in your land. This is the same idea that that verse in Colossians has. It isn't knowing facts about God. The people of Israel knew the facts about God. They knew the covenant. They went to church every week. They offered the sacrifices. They knew God, but they had no knowledge. They didn't know Him. The people of Israel, they were cheating. They had left the protection of God and were looking to foreign gods and foreign policies. They were slaves, prostitutes, selling themselves for the military safety that came from false lovers that God had just freed them from, if you know the story. It's like they kept their wedding ring on, but they kept sleeping around. They kept the appearances of serving God, but their hearts, they didn't know Him. And that's what God wanted all along, for them to know Him. Probably one of the most famous verses in Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Now, Jesus quotes this passage several times. And each time it's to the religious people of the day, the ones who claimed to be righteous, but were really just religious. They had the rules without the relationship. They didn't know him. I mean, who wants to be part of a relationship where your partner just goes through the motions? A loving husband who doesn't, I mean, who, who is a loving husband who doesn't want any passion in their marriage? The people of Israel were committing spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery over and over. And there were consequences for their actions. If they were going to live like that, God wouldn't, He couldn't be their people. He couldn't be their God. Hosea is warning them, look at all the ways you've cheated on God. And if you don't come back, things are going to get bad. Hosea 6.1, the people say this, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. This is God kind of foreshadowing what the people of Israel will say. That sounds good. They're going to go back to God, but why? Because they're hurting, not because they think they've done anything wrong. They have tears of regret over their sufferings, but not tears of repentance. They're like Gomer. It says in chapter 2, Then she will think, he's talking about Gomer here, I might as well return to my husband, for I am better off with him than I am now. She doesn't realize it was I who gave her everything she has, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave all my gifts to Baal. The people of Israel, they're not upset. They're not going to turn back to God because they feel sorry for their actions. They turn back because they're hurting. They're in pain. God responds, I love this. Chapter 3 says, Oh, Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Says the Lord. For your love vanishes like the morning mist 
and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces. In other words, I sent them to warn you, to tell you what's going to happen, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light, he says. But yet you continue. So God, like Hosea, removes his blessing. Just like Hosea is justified right to divorce her, God has every right to let Israel go. She keeps breaking the covenant. He isn't breaking the covenant. They are. They are low on me, not my people. And that isn't God pronouncing a punishment. That's what we need to understand as we read these things that seem so harsh from the Lord. This isn't God pronouncing a punishment. It's Him acknowledging the decision that Israel has already made. See, we see throughout the minor prophets that God is righteous. He is justified. What the people see as punishment is always God's discipline. He's showing the people the consequences for their actions. He's laying out all the reasons that he's right to divorce them, to abandon them, in hopes that it will lead to their repentance. Because God's discipline is like that. Romans 2, 4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? In the verse you're probably familiar with, can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? See, it's completely right for God to abandon the people. But he wants them back. He says in Hosea 11, Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? I want to read to you the end of Hosea in chapter 14. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. This is the Lord speaking through Hosea. For your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Assyria cannot save us. This is a foreign land that they were working alongside with that we're going to later see conquers and destroys them. Nor can our war horses. In other words, they can't trust in the government and other things that are happening. Never again will we say to the idols we have made, you are our gods. No, in you alone do the orphans find mercy. And then the Lord says, he says, then I will heal you of your faithfulness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. And then Hosea ends with his own words. He tags on a little bit here for the people of Israel and for us. He says, let those who are wise understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right. The righteous people live by walking in them. But in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. So what all does all have to do with you and I? I want to ask you a question. Where are you committing spiritual adultery? Where are you committing spiritual adultery? And notice I didn't ask if you are. Because you are. I am. See, there are two different kinds of categories of people who will read the book of Hosea, two different kinds of categories of people right now in this room. There are those who hear the story of Gomer and Hosea and respond, 
you don't know what I've done. There's no way I could come back from this. Or maybe it's not even a this. It's not one thing that you've done. It's the life that you've been living. You hear the story of Gomer and you realize, that's me. You look at your life and maybe particularly your sexual past, and you think there's no way I could ever be loved again. Not by a husband, not by a wife, and certainly not by God. Know that the message of Hosea is a message for you. It's not too late. God will take you back. And yes, there might be consequences for the actions that you've made, but God is an ever-faithful husband who will buy you back from your slavery to sin. We sang about that earlier. We no longer need to be slaves to sin or the fear of not being loved by God because we are his children. And there's another category of people. This is the one that I think I often fall into. And that's I don't see myself as a spiritual adulterer. That's not me. I mean, I'm a good guy. I'm a pastor. I go to church every week. Even when you guys aren't here, I'm here. I read my Bible. I pray. I give an offering. But I'm sleeping around. Not literally. Maybe you are sleeping around. Maybe not literally. Maybe not physically. Maybe you are. You're married to Jesus, but you're sleeping around with others. You've put other things in place of God in your heart. Your job. Your finances. Your health. Sports. Entertainment. Politics. You're trusting in so many other things to complete you other than God. So you remember a big part of Israel's problems was that they didn't even admit that they had a problem. They had fulfilled the religious obligations. They went to church. They did the rituals, but they didn't have a relationship. They didn't know God. And the message Hosea had for the people of Israel is the same message that we have for us today. Whether you think you have a past that is too much for God to deal with, or you just have a little God tacked on to what you really want to do, the message is the same. Come back. So what about Gomer's kids? Now, kids' names, these kids' names, they, they change. We read that in Hosea. And the children's names show us God's righteousness and His compassion. It points to one of the major themes of the minor prophets, that we see how right, how righteous, how just it is that God would abandon us. He should. We're continually cheating. Time and time again, we, like Gomer, just like Israel, are committing spiritual adultery. We turn to pleasures and the pursuits of happiness and wealth and power and politics. We run to anything and everything except the God who is right in front of us. But the names of Homer's kids really should have been our names, unloved, unclaimed, a place of death. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. But God, like an ever-faithful husband, like Hosea, doesn't give us what we deserve. He changes our name. 
And he changed these children's name. The place of death is now the God who sows. He's sowing, he's multiplying his people. He's no longer just the God of the Israelites. He's now a God for all of us. He's scattered his seed amongst the people. No love becomes love. We read that God changes her name from no love to love. And not my people again becomes my people. We see this in the New Testament where the Apostle Peter quotes from this very book and says this, because of Jesus, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And here's what he says from Hosea. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy or no love, now you have received mercy. And what about Gomer? Unfortunately, she doesn't get a name change. But her name does take on a new meaning. Gomer, while not the most flattering sounding name, does live out the meaning of her name. She's been chasing after fulfillment for so long, never satisfied, chasing after what was right in front of her. We read this as Hosea talks about her. It says, when she runs after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. Let me ask you, what are you running to other than God? What are you running to other than God? The God who's right in front of us. We, like Gomer, keep pursuing anything other than our husband who's waiting for us at home. But Gomer's name has a meaning. We read that Gomer didn't feel complete. She, like us, is searching for something else. Going out with other men cheating on her husband. But Gomer's name, it means complete. She realized she had what was right in front of her, what she needed right in front of her the whole time. She was complete from the beginning. The love of her husband made her complete. She searched for other things, but she couldn't find them. Jesus tells us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. She had what she needed all along. The love of her husband. There was the completeness. And Hosea, if you're familiar with Hebrew names, you might know that Hosea means salvation. It's a form of the Jewish name Yeshua, which is also known as Jesus. Jesus is our Hosea. He loves us when he knew from the beginning we were going to cheat. And at some point, we had to pay for our sins, for our adultery. But God's love wanted us back. A love that didn't make any sense. He didn't even try to explain it. It's his reckless love. He wanted us to know him, so he bought us back. But this time it's with the blood 
of his own son. Jesus paid the price for our infidelity. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that's often confusing to us. We've talked about this song before on first listen. It's the reckless love of God because when we think of the word reckless, we, we think that means something that wasn't thought through, a mistake. God says there were mistakes made, but it wasn't my love. There are consequences for your actions. Your sin has a reason it has to be paid for, but my love, it doesn't have a reason. It's reckless. I'm just giving it to you freely for no reason. You haven't earned it. You haven't deserved it. But the song says, yet you give your life away. It's that unending, ongoing, no matter what kind of love that Hosea had for Gomer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the message that Hosea brings to us, for the truth that it lays out, the, the window, Lord, into our own lives. Lord, I ask that as we read through these passages of Scripture that we would be, our eyes would be opened to see us in the pages, to see how we have walked away from you. God, all of us, not just the ones who maybe have actually cheated on their spouse or involved in sins that the whole world has seen, but each and every one of us commit spiritual adultery each and every day. As we put you in the place of our, of our spouse, as we look to anything other than God to fulfill us, we're cheating, Lord. That's what sin is. It's not just making a mistake. It's anything that separates us from you, anything that takes the place of where you should be in our lives. So Lord, forgive us as a people of our adultery, of the way we trust in money and in power, in relationships with each other, in politics, Lord. Oh, we put our trust in things of the world and not of you. May we run back to you, gods whose arms are open wide, your reckless love welcoming us back. You paid for our sins. God, we run to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand.